they say that's funny, but my joke wasn't. You better just spray me, trust me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> for those of you that are able to be here uh, on Time Change Sunday slash Coronavirus Sunday, you really love Jesus. This is a actually, this is a very good turnout for Coronavirus Sunday. This is really good. So I'm glad that you guys are here. Um, interestingly enough, uh, we're in uh, already Sermon 19. And we're only just finishing chapter four. Now, I will tell you, chapter four has been a very, it's been one of the most difficult preaching challenges of my career. There's so much in here, uh, so much truth and stuff. And, you know, we talked about massive and intimate last week, and we've talked about ears to hear and all those things. And then what Mark does is he closes out this incredibly important teaching area with the story of what happens at the end of that day. And so, uh, and uh, sermon 19 is called Panic on the Lake. So I, in my introduction, I have basically two questions for you to consider. And it's funny, when I wrote this, I didn't realize how poignant it would be. But is there something in life that you fear irrationally? <laughs> fear is one of the most intense emotions we face as humans. It's the moment when all of your senses and your thoughts and your mental acuity and everything tries to come together to keep you alive. It creates irrational actions or rational. It's extremely trying. So in the spirit of being completely vulnerable with you, my church family, I'm going to tell you about my most irrational fear, and it's not the virus. It is this. Your pastor, your beloved pastor, is extremely claustrophobic. I mean, listen, it's really bad for me. The thought of being in a small, cramped space is terrifying. I'd rather have coronavirus than be in a small, cramped space. I mean, for real, my heart, I can feel my heart start to race. I get short of breath. I get panicky. I remember there was a simulation ride at Universal. I, don't, I think it might have been a Back to the Future one. I can't remember which one it was. But you walk in and you sit down in this little thing and, the, and it closes right next to your face. And I said, oh, heck no. And I banged on the, get me out, get me out. They stopped the ride. True story, to get me out. And I was more than happy to inconvenience everyone because I wanted out of that death trap. Being even more vulnerable with you, if we ever are out to dinner, please do not make me sit on the inside seat. I'm not kidding. I will walk out on you. I will leave you there. I'm gone. Okay? So that's my irrational fear. Next question. Have you ever been so afraid or so angry you felt betrayed by God? 
I mean, because really all fear is, if you think about it, all fear really is, if I had to boil it down to a workable definition, it's the moment you realize you don't have control of a situation and or its damaging potential outcome. It's those moments, often as humans, we are tempted to question God's motives or even his existence. Why have you forgotten about me, God? What, are you just going to sit there and let this happen? You're not going to fix this mess? What is wrong with you? Both of these concepts are at play in today's passage. Let's read Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 35. On that day, this is at the end of all the teaching, right? On the parables and the seed and the sower. He's been in the boat all day. And he's been teaching his disciples privately after he taught the multitude on the hills. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. So it's getting dark. And leaving the crowd, they took with him, with them, they, they took him with them on the boat, just as he was. In other words, they didn't go back on shore to get something else. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? <clears throat> and he awoke and rebuked the wind. And the sea, he said, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. <laughs> so they go from one fear, to, they're filled with another fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So this was the uh, tweet from Mark this week. Uh, he did a great job categorizing this, you know. He says, we're on the boat we're trying to keep it quiet. Jesus is sleeping, but the weather's starting to get bad. Stay tuned. So I want to talk about the history of today's passage. Don't come up in a boat with God. If you've got to be in a boat, that's probably the best person you want to be in a boat with. Am I right? So just sit right back, and you'll hear a tale. You see what I did there? Jesus has been around Capernaum the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, teaching in all the villages and the towns and in the countrysides. And earlier that morning, he'd started moving away from this massive crowd that was following him. They all wanted healing, whatever. And he starts going to the shore, which he's done a few times now. <clears throat> he's been on a boat just off the shore most of the day, preaching to the crowd and then teaching his disciples in private what the parables meant. And I can imagine how exhausted Jesus got to be after all of this. I know how I feel seriously. I know how I feel on a Sunday after just preaching for 30 minutes. But he's been going all day. The day is about over, and it's time to get out of there. It's time to leave. So they start off on about a three-hour tour. And I didn't make that up. That's actually about what it would be across this, the other side. He tells them, listen, immediately, let's take our boat, and we have to get to the other side of the lake the Sea of Galilee. It's about 13 miles across and 8 miles wide, so it's anywhere between a two or three hour journey depending upon the wind, if it's going with you or against you, if you've got a row or you're going to sail. And most of them, these guys, a lot of them are commercial fishermen. They would have made this trek many, many times. It's a routine trip. No big deal. It's the next logical move because, you know, it's, they had a lot going on in, in this region of Capernaum. So now they're going across the Sea of Galilee to the other side of this 8 to 13 mile lake to start a new thing. But first they get to rest and relax because there are no crowds there waiting for them. 
It's been a long day. Let's go to the other side. We can relax. And now Jesus seems to have a little bit of downtime, right? So he goes to the back of the boat, grabs a pillow, and falls asleep. I can imagine the relaxing sounds of the waves, you know, just rippling against the boat. You know, just nice, relaxing. Goes right to sleep, I imagine. But then the weather started getting rough. So while sleeping, storms would happen on the Sea of Galilee, but this one seems to be an unusually massive storm beginning to build. The wind is picking up. I won't go into all the reasons why, geographically why this storm would have performed, but this, formed, but this was a normal thing. <clears throat> but this is extra big. The waves are crashing over the boat. And they're probably pretty much at this point right smack in the middle of the lake. So they can't turn around. They're six miles from shore either way. It's dark. Can you see how this is setting up like a plot to Gilligan's Island? Remember, many of these guys are commercial fishermen. They're used to getting caught in these normal squalls. They've handled them plenty of times. But this storm is so powerful, it frightens even these seasoned commercial fishermen. They see the waves. They look at Jesus. The waves. Jesus. The waves. And Jesus, and the anxiety and fear and panic is building. Does that sound familiar? What's going on right now? <coughs> Facing abject panic, they have no other choice but to wake him up. They're desperate, they're frustrated, they're panicked. And in that moment, they have lost all confidence and trust in this sleeping rabbi. I mean, if anyone on earth... They should have been able to trust him. It would be them, right? They've seen all this stuff he's done. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him feed the 5,000. They've seen him cast out evil. They've seen him make Pharisees look like total idiots. But all of that is forgotten in this very moment of panic. After all the things they've witnessed, all the miracles, all the healings, all the authority, it still really hadn't registered with them who this guy is. So they calmly... Jesus, I'm sorry to bother you. Shh. Can you just kind of get up and shh, just, it's just me. Shh. Just get up and quiet the wind. You think that's how they did it? No, the scripture says they berate him. Jesus, what is wrong with you? Wake up. Can't you see we're going to die? Don't you even care? What are you doing sleeping? Look at the waves. This is an audacious disrespectful, faithless question born out of sheer abject terror. Fear at this moment has overcome their faith. And so Mark tweets about it this week. Remember Gilligan's Island? The boat ride was a three-hour tour. The weather was getting rough. Our tidy ship was tossed. I know it's tiny. That was a typo. Leave me alone. If not for Jesus calming the store, the kingdom would be lost. I shouldn't be joking. We were really scared and Jesus was annoyed. All right, so let's look at the spiritual side. What about Jesus? What does he do and why and how does he do it? First of all, I want you to see Jesus does save the ship. He wakes up. He sees their fear and anxiety on their faces. He hears it in their voices and calmly, graciously, immediately acts. He commands the wind to stop and he makes the seas be still. There's no theatrics, no big chant, no big production. He just says, knock it off, wind. Knock it off, seas, and it all stops instantaneously. He demonstrates 
absolute power over creation, something he would demonstrate again later at the end of his life when he conquers death, which we'll be talking about in just a few weeks on Easter. And Mark says, he uses this word megas, which we get a, an English word mega. The word megas, this is, he, he takes an extra special word to explain just how big the calm was. Megas means expansive in size, circumference, and extent. He says it was megas calm. Megas calm, massive calm. He says it wasn't just that the wind started to die down a little bit and the seas get a little bit more manageable. He says it went from total raging storm to absolute placid calmness, mega calm, as far as the eye could see. The whole sea became like a pond. The wind died instantly. The waves are gone. It's a shocking display of power. And then Jesus says, you guys know who you're talking to? This is after they yell at him for not caring that they're going to die. He does all that stuff. Hey, guys, you don't know who I am yet. I just taught you today all the stuff that's going to happen with the kingdom, starting with a mustard seed and becoming this great thing. Do you really think, do you guys really think that I'm going to let a storm end me before we even get started? Why are you afraid of this storm? Don't you have any faith in me? Haven't I already proven to you that you can trust me? And then they respond, who is this guy? First, they were afraid of the storm. Afraid of dying. Then Jesus calms the storm. And now, they're even more afraid. <laughs> they ask a rhetorical question, who is this man? He controls the wind and the sea. It's a rhetorical question. It's a question that indicates they realize at that moment, after the storm and the abject panic and fear of the wind and the, and the waves, they realize in that moment that they are face to face in a boat with the creator of the world. This is the Genesis 1-1 guy. But this fear was a lot different than the fear of the storm. Their fear before was one of fear of dying, and now this one is a fear of reverence and awe. In reality, their fear now is worship. I want to give you an example of somebody who had this same experience. This guy, Job, and it may very well be our next study. I'm not sure yet, but I love the book of Job. It's an incredible story with an incredible theological depth to it. So Job, as you guys know, that uh, the enemy said, you know, God, if I take away all his stuff and everything, he'll curse you and die. In other words, if you let me take away all his stuff, you won't be able to save him. And God says, no, I can keep Job no matter what you do to him. So he loses his family, loses his money, loses his popularity, loses everything. And then people start mocking him. His friends say, why don't you just curse God and die? God has abandoned you. God has given up on you. And then for several chapters, Job just basically gripes and complains to God. God, why have you allowed this to happen? I thought you were my God. I thought I worshipped you. I thought you were my father. I thought, I thought you loved me. What is going on? He's basically asking the same question the disciples are. Do you not even care that I'm going to die? And then when God confronted Job <laughs> on his complaints about what he endured, he also was afraid of God. Here's what he says. After God says, I'm the one who created the earth and the sea. I'm the one that gave you the money. I'm the one that gave you the family. You wouldn't even be alive if it wasn't for me. And he goes on for like three chapters. God does it. Job, here's who I am. 
Here's why I don't appreciate your question. And here's Job's response. <laughs> Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hands on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Job says, I got it. Now I know. My bad. <laughs> and John and Paul articulate this idea of who our Jesus is and why he had power over the storm and how we should trust him. In John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, here's what John says. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing, was not anything made that was made. In other words, this Jesus guy, he is God. He is the Genesis 1-1 dude. He created everything. And I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, <clears throat> the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This wasn't just Jesus in the boat. This was God, and it caused them to have a personal moment of awe. So let's look at the personal side. What about us? What are we supposed to do, and how are we supposed to do it? I want to talk about your moment of awe. So my Sunday sermon preview for this week, have you ever felt betrayed by God? The disciples did. Job did. And so what happens many times for people... I think this is where we get hung up when it comes to our relationship with God in a fallen world where there's a lot of bad things happening. Many of us have asked this question, Jesus, don't you care? I mean, we often approach God in the same way the disciples did in the boat. You're no better than them. Especially when we forget who he really is. We take on the role, and this is, this is where it gets so sick, right? We're so afraid of what's going on in the world, we take on the role of being God's victim. Talking to God as we would if he were just another human being who has betrayed us. We blame him for our circumstances. We approach him like he's subject to our accountability. How can you be sleeping? This is our typical human response to God. And scripture is full of stories just like this one and Job. And these moments are really nothing more than one simple thing. These are moments, these are times where we forget that Jesus is God. We forget who he really is. And that's the problem. Jesus, don't you care? But you know what Jesus does instead? Like he could just say, you don't know who you're talking to. <laughs> Done. But instead he responds with patience and compassion. You know, it must be really hard to be God and put up with us. I mean, can you imagine like how frustrating? Hey, hey Angel Gabriel, get a load of this panic. <laughs> I know, I know. I tried to tell him, but whatever. Time and again, 
God shows incredible patience and grace and mercy that speaks actually where he doesn't have a need to do this because he's God, but instead what he does is he speaks right into our fear. Like the countless times he put up with Israel's unbelief and doubt and rebellion, like he did with Job and like he did with the disciples on the boat, and other times like there was a time when there was a little boy that his disciples were unable to help, and Jesus says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? Does that sound like a guy who's just having a blast? (laughs) How long am I to bear with you? You guys just don't get it. I'm God. (laughs) He says, bring the boy to me. And the scripture tells us he heals him. And everybody, once again, the scripture says, and they're amazed. And guess what? They're in awe. (laughs) He patiently meets doubt with grace fear with mercy, panic with compassion and provision. He answers our, od- our audacious responses to him by a simple, gentle reminder of who he really is. He speaks to our fear and to our weakness, quashing them with the power that only a creator could. And that's what leads to the beginning of wisdom. Let me put a verse up there for you. I'm going to do the antithesis of this first. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Remember when I described fear as the moment all of our senses come alive? Life without a Jesus in a boat moment is really quite trivial. It's a few decades of experiences, and then it's over. Pointless. Living without an awe of my God seems to be like living life with blinders on, ears covered. It's quite frankly a very shallow existence. It's just a life of gathering experiences that mean nothing to us once we die and we leave this temporary world. That's what life is like without awe. But then I want to talk about Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One. That's insight. Over the last month of sermons in Mark 4, many of you had told me personally that some of these sermons made you nervous. Am I good soil? Am I bad? Am I a part of the kingdom? Am I an outsider? Do I have ears to hear or do I not have ears to hear? Many of you have asked yourselves that question. Some of you have admitted it to me. If you have asked these questions, that is a natural response for those who are fully alive that know that Jesus is God. And this, my brothers and sisters, is a good thing. Scripture teaches us That fear born out of knowing who God is, is a sign that you are, in fact, good soil. It's a sign that you are enlightened. The reverent awe of the creator is a clear sign of life, a sign you have embraced who Jesus says he really is. So perhaps these messages in Mark 4 over the last several weeks have provided your Jesus in a boat moment, if you will. That's what that moment of awe was for the disciples in that boat. 
The storm was actually a gift. Now, a Jesus in the boat moment doesn't have to have abject panic attached to it, although it can. But there has to be moments in your life where you have awe, reverence, respect, and concern with how you approach Heavenly Dad. It's in moments right after the storm. Listen carefully. It is in those moments right after the storm, no matter what it looks like, that he actually becomes your savior and not just some other guy in a boat. Without that moment, that Jesus in the boat moment, that moment of awe, you will never have the full wisdom and knowledge of what life is all about, what it really means, what's the point. Recognizing the power of Jesus is that awesome moment that eternity, get this now, recognizing the power and the awe of Jesus is that moment when eternity becomes more important than the right now. That's the dividing line. That's why you ask the questions, am I good soil? Because you are dividing, saying, you know what? Eternity is more important than today. Fear of the Lord is the only moment a human can truly, finally grasp the meaning and purpose of living on this earth. It is, in fact, the moment he reveals to us that he is our God with power over creation and the ability to save your souls. Heavenly Dad, I just pray that you would give us our moment of awe. Lord, I don't know if maybe some here have never had that moment until now. I pray that you would cement it in their heart and mind. As we sing this last song that Megan picked out, I'm just so excited about how the words fit the text so closely. And it just drives home everything that we see happening in the disciples in that moment. We pray, Jesus, that if there are those who've never had that moment of awe, that today would be that day where they realize, you know what? Eternity is more important than today or even tomorrow.